Turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy. All right, let's pray and then let's jump into what we've got to, to look at tonight. Lord God, we praise you for who you are as God, the ruler of all things, covenant-making, steadfast and faithful God. Uh, we thank you for the way you have revealed yourself uh, in creation, but especially in the written word. And tonight, tonight give us understanding as we uh, overview the book of Deuteronomy. Give me clarity uh, as I try to communicate these things. Give us ears to understand them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we are now at the end of the Torah. We made it through the first five books. It took us seven weeks to get through five books, but we did it, okay? Um, we, are, we are wrapping up the Torah tonight. Last week, we looked at Numbers. Uh, what was one of the main themes in the book of Numbers? Anybody remember? The census, right? Yeah, yeah, there's two, two numberings of the people, hence the name. What was another uh, big theme in the book of Numbers? wandering, and had to do something with my, my children do this regularly. And you're complaining, that's right, exactly, complaining, grumbling, rebellion. So that was a big theme in the book of Numbers, and that's why we have the two censuses, okay? Because remember at the beginning, the people are numbered, they're prepared to go into, where are they going? The promised land, right, that the Lord has promised Abraham. That first generation is numbered and then prepared, but because of their rebellion, their refusal to enter the land, they're believing what the Lord has said, they are forced to wander for 40 years. Then there's a second census, which is the second generation, okay? So Deuteronomy is picking right up where numbers left off. We have that second generation that has been numbered and is now preparing to go in and take the promised land that the Lord has, has um, given to them, okay? So a couple of things that we need to understand about Deuteronomy as we enter into it. First of all, it's a transitional book, okay? It is a transitional book in terms of the place, okay? So we're moving from wandering for 40 years and the Sinai region and all that, and we're going to move into uh, the, the promised land, Okay? And it's also a transitional book in the sense of leadership. This is wrapping up Moses' leadership. You remember in Numbers, Moses did not uh, keep, uh, proclaim Yahweh as holy at the waters of uh, Meribah, I believe it was, right, where he was supposed to speak to the rock. And what did he do? He struck it, okay? And so the Lord said, because you've not kept me as holy, you will not be able to enter the land, okay? So Moses is going to be succeeded by Joshua, and we'll see that at the end of the book. Deuteronomy, I think, is also transitional in that Deuteronomy, more than any other book in the Old Testament, at least in the Torah, places an emphasis on the need for a right heart to obey Yahweh, over and over, you see where Moses is saying, you need circumcised hearts, you need circumcised ears. So there needs to be a, a transformation of the people's hearts and minds so they can truly obey the Lord and they can properly fear him and love him. And then they can know his blessings, okay? So it's a transitional book. The other thing that Deuteronomy is, it's actually a collection of three sermons given by Moses. Um, so it's, it's a sermonic book, you could say it that way, right? Uh, Moses is addressing the, the second generation who's responsible to go in and conquer the land. And so he's giving them instruction. Um, it's given on the plains of Moab, so what, just 80 miles down the road, right? Moses is standing out there. Not really, that was a joke. That was a joke, right? Given on the plains of Moab. But I'll keep my day job. Um, but, but he's giving these sermons. Now, a good sermon is not just relaying facts and details, correct? Right? When you're listening to a sermon, it's not just like, here's the, here's the, the facts, the, the structure of the text, text, but what's it trying to do? It's trying to apply that and explain it. This is what it means to you. Because you can read a thing in the text, but you still, I don't know what that means. So a good sermon is trying to tell you this is what it means. So that's what Moses is doing. He's got the law that God has given him, that Israel received in Exodus 20 and, and on, and like the book of Leviticus and all of that. And he's saying, okay, Israel, this is what, me this is what it means for you as you go in as a, a conquering nation, okay? Um, and then finally, Deuteronomy is a covenantal book. Uh, and that is a, a, a big theme, especially as we get to the end of it. Remember, Israel is a covenanted, has, has entered into a covenant with Yahweh, 
um, when they when they entered into that covenant at Mount Sinai, remember the Lord said, "This is all that I have done for you." And the people respond uh, to to obey the Lord. We love you because of what you've done and because of who you are. We commit ourselves to obeying you uh, and to following you. And so Deuteronomy is now going to reaffirm that covenant with the next generation. This was to be a pattern in the nation of Israel that each generation that would come in would would reaffirm the covenant that they had made. You see this, um, I've just finished reading Chronicles not too long ago. And like Josiah, the king comes in and reinstitute, re, the, recommits the people to the covenant. So they're saying, okay, all that God has said, we will do. And as a people, we've committed ourselves to that. So that's what happens in, in Deuteronomy. Um, so this is what we're going to do. We're just going to work our way through the book. The first, uh, and, and you've got the outline in your notes if you kind of want to follow along. I don't have any slides because there's nothing of interest to put on slides. And I lose my place in trying to forward them. So you can just... Listen and follow along with your handout. So the first five verses give us the setting of these sermons. So it says the place of the book, chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, and then verse 5 also tells us this, but it says, These are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel beyond the Jordan in the wilderness, in the Rabbah opposite Suf between Paran and Tophel, Laban, Hazaroth, and Dizahab. It is 11 days' journey from Horeb by the way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea, and then verse 5a, he says that they're in the, beyond the Jordan in the land of Moab. So if you were a, a, a Jew in these times, you'd have an idea of where these places would be. Of course, it's a little bit foreign for us, but it gives us a setting. We know that, you remember, that the Jordan River divides, or is the, makes up the, what would be the east boundary of Israel, if I got my directions right. Uh, and so they're on the, is that what he said? Yeah, it doesn't say, yeah, huh? Yeah, Israel is on the west. They're on the east. I just had a, a mind confusion for a minute there. So it happens, okay? So that's where, where Moses is delivering these addresses. Verses three and four tell us the time. So it's in the 40th year on the first day of the 11th month. Moses spoke to the people of Israel according to all that the Lord had given him in a commandment to them after he had defeated Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who lived in Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth and Edre. So it's 40 years after what major event? The Exodus, right? So the Exodus has happened, 40 years of wandering. Now they're ready to go. The Lord has been faithful to his, to his promise. And then that... that uh, notation of the defeating of those kings that took place in Numbers. And that is significant because, well, one, if you read in Numbers, it says, I think of Sihon, that he was, he was a giant who laid on a bed of iron that was like 10 feet long. So they're defeating the giants even before they go into the land. You remember that was their big fear. Oh, there's giants in the land. We can't overcome them. Okay. And then the purpose of the book is in the second half of verse five, where it just says that Moses undertook to explain this law. Okay, that's what's happening in the book of Deuteronomy. Moses is explaining to them the law of God. And it's going to detail for them how they've gotten to where they're at, as well as how they can have future success. How are you going to live in the land? How are you going to prevail over these, these giants? And, and then ultimately, it's going to culminate, again, in the people's renewal of the covenant. Okay, so the first sermon starts in uh, chapter 1 and verse 6 or verse... Not, actually, probably more verse 9, but I have it at verse 6, uh, because there Moses is detailing, all right, the Lord has told us, you've, you've wandered for long enough, it's time to go into the land. So Sermon 1, I've entitled Israel's Recent History, okay? Um, the re- what Moses is going to do in this is detail the fact that outside of Yahweh and his gracious covenant with these people, Israel does not exist as a nation, Right? They, they, they are just a people in slavery in Egypt. But the Lord has remembered his covenant with Abraham, and Israel needs to understand their history and Yahweh's love, of the, love for them, his unique covenantal love, so they can understand their place in the world. They also need to understand, why are we entering the land and our parents are not? What did our parents do? And we need to learn lessons from that. Okay? So he starts first in chapter 1, verse 9, recounting the history of the rebellious generation. And he recounts what took place back in Exodus 18 and Moses' establishment of judges to help him uh, judge over the people. Remember his father-in-law Jethro came and said, the people are many and you're sitting here listening to all of these cases, even ones that are 
of small magnitude, why don't you appoint some judges to help you? And then the greater, the greater cases, they'll be brought to you. So he recounts that. And then he records uh, the spies in chapter 1, verse 19, um, how they had, they had left Mount Horeb, which is also Mount Sinai, and they, they, they ventured north up towards, the, towards Canaan, but they were not able to enter the land. Uh, and the reason was, was the spies went up, they spied out the land, they said, it's great, but there's a problem, and it's these, these giants. And so Moses recounts their rebellion against the Lord and the punishment for that rebellion. So in ver- by chapter 2, verse 16, he's summed up, really, the last 40 years. And then he moves to now this current generation, okay? So it's the, the history of the conquering generation starting in chapter 2, verse 16. And he says, So as soon as all the men of war had perished and were dead from among the people, the Lord said to me, Today you are to cross the border of Moab at Ar, and when you approach the territory of the people of Ammon, do not harass them or contend with them, for I will not give any of the land of the people of Ammon as a possession, because I have given it to the sons of Lot for a possession. So he's saying, uh, everybody in that 40-year time frame, they've died. And now it's our turn. We're going we're gonna to start moving out towards the land. Um, then he recounts again that victory over Sihon and Og at the end of chapter 2 and chapter 3. And then he recounts what we looked at last time in Numbers with Reuben and Gad settling the land. So there, those two tribes, Reuben and Gad, that, that found good pasture land outside of Canaan. And they said, we want to settle here. And there's a contentious debate. We can't let them settle here because we need them. We need their, their men to go and help us conquer the promised land. And so Reuben and Gad, those tribes agreed to go and uh, help. So all of these events, right, from the defeat of Sihon and Og and the settling of Reuben and Gad, this would be familiar now to this generation. This has all happened in a relatively short span of time for them, okay? Um, and then he also recounts uh, his sin, Moses' sin, in striking the rock and not being able to go up into the land. So then we get to chapter 4, and this is, this is if, if Moses' sermon style is, uh, you know, here's the details of the text, now let me apply it to you. That's what he does in chapter 4, right? Here's all the history, this is what it means for you in chapter 4. And it's this, I've entitled it, Take Care to Obey the Lord. And this is what this generation needs to learn. And what he's saying is, you know your history, how your parents failed to obey the Lord, and because you know the holiness of the Lord, take care to obey. So he points out in the first half of the chapter, uh, verse 3, he says, your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor. Do you remember what what happened there? It was in Numbers 25, I, I believe. Balaam, remember awful Balaam, he had said, you know, I can't curse Israel, but if you get them to fall into idolatry, that's how you'll defeat them. And so the Midianites came in and, uh, and they, they caused Israel to, to worship Baal. And there is a, uh, the righteous men of Israel exacted vengeance and killed a bunch of them and things like that. The, those who though fell into league worshiping Baal, they were, they, they died because of their, of their sin. And so Moses is saying, you saw that, right? That was your parents. It's not too long ago. Uh, pay attention. You saw what the, what the Lord did. Those who fall into idolatry will meet the Lord's judgment. Then notice what he says in verses 6 and 8. And, and he says this, uh, Keep them and do them. So he's speaking about the law. For that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who when they hear all these statutes will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. So Israel, by obeying God's law, they demonstrate to all the other nations, this law is really good, and, and it reflects the wisdom and character of, of your God. Um, and then verses 9 and 10, and I'm not going to read these because otherwise we'll be here all, all, but you can just look at them. But what he's saying there, the importance of passing this law along to your children, right? Uh, you've seen what has happened in the past. Uh, continue to instruct your children in obedience to the law. Uh, notice in verses 10 through 14 as well, um, he says, how on that day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, the Lord said to me, gather the people to me that I may let them hear my words. Isn't it interesting that he includes this generation as being the recipients of the covenant and the law at Mount Sinai? Even though probably many of them weren't there, 
right? And that's because they are identified with uh, all, the, all the subsequent generations of Israel are identified with that first one that made that covenant with, with the Lord at Yahweh. So when they, so they're, they're, they're um, yeah, identified with, I guess would be the best way to, to, to uh, see that. But it's important to pass the law of God along to your children. Verses 15 through 19, there's instruction against idolatry because of how Yahweh has revealed himself. So don't make an image, a golden image or things like that. That's not how Yahweh has revealed himself to you. And he recounts what happened at Sinai. Look at verse 23. He says that idolatry is covenant breaking. So when you go and worship other idols, you're breaking the covenant. Verse 24, Yahweh is jealous for his glory. And look at verse 26. I think this is really important. Um, He says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but will be utterly destroyed. He seems to be saying this is a cosmic covenant that you have as a nation of Israel. If you go into, into the land and you completely forget the Lord. Nobody in the, in, as a nation of Israel remembers the law, remembers the covenant. Nobody is faithful to it. He says, even creation will testify against you, right? You think there's a number of times where Israel is going to set up monuments as, to bear witness. They're going to do it actually in just the next book. They're going to cross over and they're going to set a pile of stones to serve as a remembrance so that when people would come to these, these memorials, it's a reminder of what God has done of the law, things like that. So here, I think what Moses is saying, not only do you have the actual covenant documents in the, the, the 10 words written on the stone, but even heaven and earth testify to this covenant. They will bear witness against you in the trial of your, of your guilt when you break the covenant. Verse 28 says that transgression through idolatry will lead to their scattering. So if you forsake me and go after other idols, you will be removed from the land. But verses 29 and 31 tell us that repentance brings mercy. The Lord will not forsake his covenant. All right, so there's, there's warnings of judgment and promises of mercy when they repent and turn back to the Lord. Look at verses 32, and we're going to read this 32 through 40. For ask now of the days that are past, which were before you, since the day that God created man on the earth, and ask from one end of heaven to the other whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or was ever heard of. Did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and still live? Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God, there is no other besides him. So again, he's restating what was his purpose in all of these things? You would know that Yahweh alone is God. There is no other beside him. Verse 36, Out of heaven he let you hear his voice, that he might discipline you. And on earth he let you see his great fire, and you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. And because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them, and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power, driving out before you nations greater and mightier than you to bring you in, to give you their land for an inheritance as it is this day? Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other. Therefore you shall keep his statutes and his commandments which I command you today that it may go well with you and with your children after you and that you may prolong your days in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for all time. Okay, so bottom line, he's saying, don't make the same mistakes your parents did, right? That's, I think, kind of the application point. Don't do that. And then look and marvel at what God has done for you and commit to obey him. And it's, a, it's not a, out of duty. It's out of delight and joy, right? Like you see, he loves you. He loved your forefathers and the generations that would come after. That's why he's made this covenant. So you can joyfully love him and serve him. Okay, so that's sermon number one. Sermon number two then is an explanation of the law. And this is the longest one. This would be a, oh, probably like a three-hour sermon, something like that, right? We're not used to those. Although at this rate, we might actually get that tonight. Um, but but this uh, next chapters, 
the first six chapters, chapters 5 through 11, are really, uh, again, more theological foundation for, for the detailed explanation of the law, which takes place in chapters 12 through 28. I put in your, um, in your notes this chart from Jim Hamilton, and he said, broadly speaking, all of Deuteronomy 6 through 25 can be understood as a development of the Ten Commandments as seen in this, this table. And so he lists out the commandments and then shows, well, there's a typo in there, ignore that, uh, how each chapter corresponds to one of those commands. And so it's kind of just an interesting parallel. If you, if you go and read through those, you'll see how that, how that works out. But chapters 5 through 11 are all motivating factors for Israel to love Yahweh and obey him. So chapter 5 is a recounting of the 10 words, the law given at Sinai. Um, and what Moses is saying, again, as we saw this in Exodus, these 10 words or these 10 commands lay the foundation for all the other laws that, that Israel has. They're all kind of born out of this. So it's an important place for him to start there. Um, I think one of the other things is Moses is recounting again the events of the revelation at Sinai and the specifics of the law. Israel needs to understand how important and unique it is that they have the self-revelation of Yahweh to them. Right? This is a unique thing for you. Uh, and, and so don't, don't take it for granted. Look at chapter 5, verse 26 for who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of the fire as we have and has still lived, right? That's the uniqueness of this people. Chapter 6 through 11, I've titled, Obey the God Who Is Your Praise. So chapter 6, uh, he lays out the necessity of the Torah, of the law, to be the front and center in their lives. And then he also details the goodness of the law. You know, we think of the law sometimes as like... Um, legalism, right? We think of it in that, that terms. But for Israel, it was grace. And for us, it's grace as well, right? That God has revealed, this is the way you can know me, approach me, love me, and serve me. That's gracious. He doesn't have to do that. And so uh, the, the law is really good. Um, chapter 6, verse 1, this is the commandment, the statutes, and the rules of the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land to which you are going to possess it. So in order for Israel to go and to possess and to stay in the land, they need to obey and follow and do God's laws. They are to fear the Lord. And this fear of the Lord is one that is born out of love and respect. It is a, what we would call a filial fear. It's a, the fear of a parent and a child, right? Uh, my children, I hope, fear me in the right sense, right? Because they, they love me. And so because of that, they, they want to obey, of course, that breaks down like moments <laughs> as, soon as, as soon as we're home, right? But that was the, the desire. It's the same, the relationship we have with the Lord. God is our Father, right? And we love Him, we fear Him, but we love Him just as well. It's a desire to please, them, please the Lord and not to offend. Uh, chapter, verse, uh, chapter 6, verses 24 and 25, they are to understand that obedience to the Lord's commands is for their good, Right? There's blessing that comes through obedience. And then in, in both chapter 5 and in chapter 6, there's a theme that, is, that will be recurring, and I talked about this at the very beginning, and that's the necessity of the right kind of heart to obey God's laws and God's commands. Look at uh, verses 28 and 29 of chapter 5. The Lord said to me, I have heard the words of this people which they have spoken. They are right in all that they have spoken, Oh, that they had such a heart as this always to fear me and to keep all my commandments that it may go well with them and with their descendants forever. Because Israel, like there's always an enthusiasm to obey the law right away, right? Here's the law. Uh, will you obey it? You bet. We will. Every, every aspect of the law we obey. And then Yahweh responds, oh, that they had that heart to obey me always and then it would go well with them, Okay. Uh, chapter 7, we see the uniqueness of Israel amongst the nations. Um, their uniqueness and holiness means they are to drive out the godless inhabitants of the land. That's what he's talking about in um, chapter 7, verse 2. When the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. Uh, when we get to Joshua and stuff, sometimes it, it's kind of problematic because it's kind of a holy war book. In a sense, you're like, this is really? 
Uh, but the reality is, think about you know the the purity and holiness of Yahweh, and then the purity and holiness of His people. They got to get this these sinful, godless people out of the land. Um, Israel needs to understand that they are the Lord's treasured possession, so he will drive these nations out. And then Moses recounts, you've already seen this happen, right? Sihon and Og, those are good demonstrations of how the Lord is already driving out the nations before you, okay? Chapter eight, there's a warning against pride, a reminder that Yahweh has blessed them with this land that they will go and possess. Here Moses is dealing with the temptation that's gonna arise in their hearts when they get in the land and things are really good and peaceful, they might think, well, boy, we got this for ourselves, right? Uh, We're we're something special. The human heart is naturally inclined to self-exaltation. Look at verses 17 and 18. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. You know, um, You remember when Israel in Numbers, would have been like in chapter 14, when they didn't obey, they they listened to the report of the spies and they said, the land's scary, we can't go in and take it. And then then Moses, the Lord Lord brought judgment against them, said, okay, you're gonna wander. And what was their response? Oh, we can do it. We'll go up and take the land. And they got up and they got their fannies kicked, right? Uh, So they tried to take possession of the land in their own strength and power and it did not work out so well for them. Chapters 9 and 10, there's another warning against pride. Israel is nothing special in and of themselves. Rather, they're uniquely stubborn and hard-hearted. Over and over, that's a theme the Lord brings out. Um, So just as Israel might be tempted to think they gained the land because of some special ability, they might also think that they're actually, uh, Yahweh chose them because of something unique and special in them. And so what Uh, Moses and the Lord want them to know is you are blessed only by grace, not by merit. You have no worth or value in and of yourselves. Look at chapter nine, verse five. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God is driving them out from before you, that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And then look at the second half of verse seven, from the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. Right, so this is, this is who this nation is uh, in their heart. Chapters 10 and 11, this, these are important chapters. This is the call to love Yahweh. And this is the necessity of a new heart and the centrality of the Torah in their lives. Look at verse 12 of this chapter. Uh, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. You above all peoples as you are this day. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Okay, so what is he saying there? What was the physical sign Israel had been given? Circumcision. But here he's not talking about physical circumcision. It's a circumcision of the heart. You need a changed heart, okay? Circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great and mighty, the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. And by his name, you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons. And now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. So like we saw in chapter four, Moses again, calling them to have a right kind of heart in response to the greatness of God. Ultimately, for Israel, obedience to the Lord cannot happen without a changed heart, and that's what he is, he is telling them. Um, and this circumcision, as we will see as we get to chapter 29, this circumcision of the heart is something only Yahweh can do. 
right? He's the one that can give them the changed and transformed hearts. Uh, The prophets later on are going to come and speak to this, Jeremiah and Ezekiel in particular, and they're going to promise a day when the Lord does this, right? That I will come and I will give to my people a new heart. I will write the law on their hearts and they will be my people and will be my God. Well, when does that happen? With the coming of Christ, Right? Ultimately, in Christ, we now have new hearts. So I think when, when we're talking about a circumcised heart, a new heart, he's referring to the new birth, the transformation of a person. When we put our faith in Christ, we pass from death to life, and we become a new person. And so Moses is calling for the same thing here. You need a new heart. You need to be transformed so that you can believe and obey and do what Yahweh has called you to do. Um, the second, the last um, verse 28 of chapter 11, this is what is at stake for Israel in their adherence to the Torah, to the law. Um, this law has blessing and cursing for them. Look at verse 20, or 26. See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and the curse, if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way that I'm commanding you today to go after other gods that you have not known. So there's blessing and cursing with this law. And again, these six chapters are so foundational for Israel in their obedience um, to these specific regulations the Lord is giving them. Um, For Israel, a right heart and a proper fear of the Lord is going to enable them to obey. You know, that's that's how you obey. You have a a changed heart that enables you to obey. And this will result in their receiving and knowing the blessing and the joy of having Yahweh in their midst as, as a nation. But in the same way, if these people follow the same path as their forefathers, if they rebel just as their parents did, judgment will come upon them. Okay, so chapters 12 through 28 then are the more detailed explanation of the law. So when we think of law, again, we're thinking of, you know, don't mix these kinds of clothing and don't uh, boil a goat in its young mother's milk, things like that. Those are, those are laws, and that's kind of what happens in here. Chapters 12 through 17 are regulations for worship in the land. Um, again, Israel is going in to possess the land and, and not only is it a, a blessing, but they're also being used as a tool of judgment against the pagan nations of the land. Um, so by obeying the Lord and worshiping him as he has prescribed, Israel will have blessing and will flourish in the land. You see that in chapter 12, verse 1. Um, one of the things they need to do when they go into the land is they need to destroy all the pagan worship sites. Verses 13 and 14 touch on that. Um, and they are uh, to worship the Lord at the place he chooses. So they can't just go worship anywhere they want. The Lord will tell them where to worship. Uh, There's going to be a temptation for them to follow in the same abominable practices of the Canaanites. Look at uh, verses 30 through 31. He's saying, because of these horrible things, that's why these people are being cast out of the land. Don't do them. But Israel will, as we see in their future, they will fall into these traps. So chapter 13, the people worship the Lord by not committing idolatry, but they also worship the Lord by doing what he has commanded. Chapter 14, we see that in abstaining from certain foods, giving back to the Lord a portion of what he has given them, observing the Sabbath and the feast the Lord has given. Those are in chapter 15 and 16. Um, and all of those things, again, that, that rhythm of worship and giving, observing periods of rest, all is saying, this is all from Yahweh. It all belongs to him. We're stewards of it. We are, we, we are responding in thankfulness and gratefulness as they obey the Lord's commands in these ways. Chapters 17 and 18 are laws for Israel's leaders. Uh, in the history of Israel, and really in every nation to, to a certain degree, as the leaders go, so go the people, right? Uh, so Israel is definitely going to follow that same uh, path. So the Lord gives them instructions for a king. Now, it's not going to be for, what, another four, five hundred years before they get their first king. But even, even now, the Lord is, is, knows that this is going to, to happen. So he's looking forward to a day when Israel will want a king, and he's giving them specific commands for what that king is to look like. 
And it's to be completely different than all the other kings of the nation. So when we get into First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings, we're going to reference back to this a lot because this is the standard. And then we go, well, do Israel's kings look like that, right? And the, more often than not, it will be no, right? Especially as the nation is divided. Um, then we also see the Lord providing for those who serve in the priestly role. You see that in the first part of chapter 18. Remember, the Levites themselves did not get a section of land that they were going to go live in. So here's provision for them and how they would be, uh, have, have land to live on, food to eat, things like that. And then it also details what the prophetic office should look like. So if you start like in verse um, 9, yes, there, verse 9 uh, of chapter 18, you have described what a prophet in Israel should look like. Uh, Stephen Dempster said, Prophets will not depend on various esoteric rituals to discern the will of God. God will simply place his words in the mouth of the prophet who will then relay the message to the people. Uh, and this is, again, a pattern you see in Israel's prophetic office. I think about Jeremiah. Jeremiah, he said, like the word of God, like burned within me. I could not contain it. The Lord placed his word, called Jeremiah to that specific ministry. He could not not proclaim the word of the Lord. Okay, so that's how the Lord's uh, prophets will work. Um, it also details a really important thing in verse 15. A future prophet like Moses who the nation was to, to listen to. Um, here, Jesus, I think, is the, well, I know <laughs> Jesus is this anticipated prophet, right? Uh, again, the transfiguration passage helps us understand this partly because Jesus is there with Moses and Elijah. The father is saying, this is the one you should listen to. Moses is saying, you shall listen to this prophet like me. In Acts chapter 3, you can go look it up on your own. Go look at Acts 3, 22 through 26, where Peter makes this direct connection that Jesus is the prophet that Moses spoke of uh, here, okay? Uh, chapters 19 through 26 then give us laws for an orderly society. Uh, you know, the Ten Commandments, you have kind of a first half and a second half. The first half seem to deal with loving the Lord your God with all your heart. And the second half deal with the neighborly aspect. How do you love your neighbor? So the same thing I think is happening here. Um, in order for Israel to properly reflect Yahweh's image, to be his image bearers in the world, uh, they need to have a society that is marked by order and justice and all of the, the things that the Lord has instructed them to do, there is to be righteousness and fairness amongst the people. So first of all, you have laws for protection. And these, uh, I'm just going to list off what you see in these chapters. You see protection for the manslayer. So cities of refuge are established. So if you killed somebody not intentionally, you'd have a city you needed to flee to, right? Until to find out what has happened. Uh, because the temptation would be if you... Uh, ran over somebody in your ox cart, right? Uh, you might go get all your friends together and go lynch the guy. Well, an orderly society doesn't allow for that, so this guy needs to be protected. It wasn't an intentional thing. It was an accident, so he needs to be, he needs to be protected. There's a protection of property rights, protection of the accused by having multiple witnesses. You can't just have a, one guy bring a charge against another. You need to have multiple, multiple parties, uh, there's a protection of soldiers by sending home those with families or those who through fear may be a detriment to their fellow soldiers in battle. So if you've got a, a soldier who's too afraid to go in battle, well, he's not going to be much of a help and he'll actually end up getting his brothers killed. So let's, let's send him home. There's protection from judgment through atonement for unsolved murders. So this would be in uh, the end of chapter 21. Um, so... Uh, I'm not going to go into that, that passage. That would lead us into a rabbit trail. Uh, there's protection for female captives. So if you take these women captive, how are you to treat them? Protection for the firstborn of an unloved wife. So if a husband has two wives and the firstborn son from that who would receive the, the blessing and all of those things, but the husband doesn't love the wife, uh, this was a... Who is it? Jacob... Leah and Rachel, thank you, yes, right? Uh, he didn't love Leah because, he, no, he loved Rachel. Thank you, you guys have got it. 
Uh, so there would be a protection there for, for that firstborn son, uh, protection of the people from an evil and rebellious son, and then protection from the, from the defilement of a cursed man. This is at the end of chapter 21, verse 22. Um, and this, you need to go read Galatians 3 to understand where this comes in. But he says, And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. So what did Jesus become for us when he was hung on the tree? became cursed for us, right? So there's the, that, that connection there. Um, so the commands regarding uh, agriculture, fashion, sexuality, all help protect the people of God from entering into the practices of the Canaanites. Um, and there's, these are going to continue on in chapter 22 and 23. You're going to have these... Um, laws concerning sexual immorality, the kind of people that cannot enter into the, the tabernacle. All of these things deal with the purity of the people, right? So you can't have unclean people going into a clean place and defiling it, right? Or being struck dead, right? Because if an unclean person goes into the presence of holiness, they're dead, right? So it's protecting Israel and it is uh, keeping them from, from falling into the practices of the unclean people of the land, Okay. Um, then we get to chapter 26, starting in verse 16 through, through the end of chapter 28, and we have covenantal terms, okay? Um, you remember throughout the Torah, there's a process that seems to happen when, when people enter into a covenant with Yahweh. So there's usually, there's a, a, a declaration of the terms, there's a commitment to hold to this. We see this at Sinai, right? The Lord says, this is all that I've done for you. And the people agree to those terms. And then there's like a covenant ceremony. Same thing kind of happened with Abraham, right? The Lord appears to Abraham and says, I'm going to do these things for you. And of course, that was not on Abraham's part at all. The Lord just said, I'm going to do that. And then there's a covenant ceremony where the Lord walks through those, through those animals. So we kind of see the same thing, I think, happen here. But Israel is to live in such a way that reflects the supremacy of Yahweh over their lives in every single area, right? There's no distinction of the secular and the sacred for them or for us, right? Like all is sacred. All belongs to the Lord. Everything we do is to be done uh, with the reality that he is God and ruling over our lives, okay? So we have these, these covenantal terms. The people are agreeing to the terms the Lord has set out and then a covenant ceremony, um, look at chapter 26, verses 16 through 19. Moses says, This day the Lord your God commands you to do these statutes and rules. You shall therefore be careful to do them with all your heart and with all your soul. You have declared today that the Lord is your God and that you will walk in his ways and keep his statutes and his commandments and his rules and will obey his voice. And the Lord has declared today that you are a people for, a tr- for his treasured possession as he has promised you, and that you are to keep all his commandments, and that he will set you in praise and in fame and in honor high above all nations that he has made, and that you shall be a a people holy to the Lord your God as he has promised. Okay? So the Lord declares that he will do these things. This is very similar, right, back to Exodus 19, where the Lord says, you know, I'm going to make you my treasured possession, my special people. You will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation to me. So here again, the Lord is saying to the second generation, I'm going to do the same thing with you. You stay faithful to the covenant and you will know, know these blessings. So in chapter 27 and 28, you have the blessings and cursings of a covenantal relationship. Uh, the Lord gives instruction for the nation when they enter the land. So they're going to cross the Jordan River. We'll read about this in Joshua. They're to build an altar and then they are to uh, proclaim, they'll put half the people on one mountain, half the people on the other, and they're to proclaim the blessings and the cursings of the covenant back and forth, right? So one will yell, this is a blessing. The other tribes will yell back, here's the cursing, right? So if we, we, we break the, the covenant, this is the cursing that will come upon me, upon them, okay? And then at that same place, that monument they built, that altar, it's going to stand as a witness, a testimony. This is what these people have committed to do, so if they break the law, it's standing there the whole time saying, well, you said that you'd obey and you, and you did not, okay? Um, 
Look at chapter 28, verses 45. The problem, well, just like the previous generations, it's the sin of unbelief, failing to believe what God has said that will bring the curses on the people. 28, 45, all these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you till you are destroyed because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that he commanded you. So right, they, they didn't believe that Yahweh would be true to his word. They didn't believe that, his, that breaking his commands would bring a curse upon them. Okay? Uh, ultimately, in verses 58 through 68, he says that the curses for disobedience will culminate in bringing against the people of Israel the diseases of Egypt and a removal, removal from the promised land. So there's a reverse of the exodus, right? The, the plagues that, that brought them out will be brought on them, and then they will be exodusted, exodused out of the land, right? They will, be, they will be removed. So let me get to the final sermon in chapter 29 and 30. <coughs> Excuse me. And this is the covenant renewal, okay? Um, it's not a new covenant, it's a renewal of the covenant that was first established at Mount Sinai. Uh, look at chapter 30, verse 15. For Israel, life is going to be found for them in obedience to the Lord and faithfulness to the covenant. Uh, he says, See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you want to live and flourish, obey the covenant. Obey the commands of the Lord. Uh, it is also doable for those who in faith believe God. So look at chapter 30, verse 11. For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. And look at verse 14. But the word is very near, near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. Um, so that they can obey, right? It's not an undoable thing. And this, this really struck me this week as I was thinking about this. Because we look at this and we go, no, it's not doable, but Jesus did it. Jesus, in his humanity, perfectly obeyed every point of the law. It's doable. And so that's where we, we are so thankful, right, that we have Jesus' perfect obedience, his perfect righteousness, that he fulfilled every part of the law. Um, this covenant, look at like verse Two, uh, Moses is predicting here what's going to happen, right? Uh, when the, when, well, you've got to start in verse 1, otherwise you're in the middle of the sentence. When all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice and all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. So the Lord knows, right, that they're going to rebel, they're going to turn against him, but yet he will be merciful and faithful as they turn. Um, then look at chapter 30, verse, well, let's see. We're, run, we're running out of time. Um, so jump ahead to chapter 31, and this is the, the final point. Israel's new leader... This is through the end of, of the chapter. So we have the importance, first of all, of the word, the, the word of God, the law for covenant faithfulness. Um, the Lord provides leaders for his people. So here we're introduced to Joshua. So Moses is not going to be able to go and lead the people into the land, but Joshua will. Um, and God's word, the, the Torah, the law, right, serves as a witness to the covenant the people have entered into with the Lord. Uh, chapter 31, verses 16 and 17. Uh, the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers. Then the people, this people will rise up. So he's, right, he's, the Lord is speaking to Moses, and Moses is telling the people, this is what the Lord has said, right? The people will rise up and whore after the foreign gods among them in the land that they are entering, and they will forsake me and break my covenant that I have made with them. Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day, and I will forsake them and hide my face from them, and they will be devoured. And many evils and troubles will come upon them, so that they will say in that day, Have not these evils come upon us, because our God is not among us. Right. So, the, again, the, the, the word of God, the covenant they have entered into, will bear witness against them, and it will be judgment to them. 
Moses writes a song in chapter 32 to teach the people, and even this song is to be a witness against them. If you forsake the Lord, this song will bear witness against you. And in this song, he recounts the the history of the nation of Israel, what the Lord has done, who he is, right? Reveals to them um, the character of God. And then chapter 32, verses verse 46, obedience to the word of God will be life for these people. Obedience will be life. And then chapter 33 and 34, we have the covenant mediator's final words of blessing. Um, you remember back in, in Numbers, we have that benediction that we often re- just pronounces at the end of the service, and the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, put this blessing upon my people. And, and again, that's a reminder that the Lord loves to bless his people. Right? We are a blessed people. Uh, Israel was a blessed people. And so the Lord reminds them of that. And for Israel, blessing would come through obedience to the covenant. As they obeyed the Lord, they would be blessed. But because uh, ultimately their hearts are not changed, their obedience is going to be halting and failing and starting and stopping. They need new hearts that desire to obey God. Stephen Dempster sums up this song in chapter 32, and he says, the song of Moses, which predicts the defection of Israel, is followed by a poem of blessing in which Moses pronounces his benediction on the tribes of Israel. And that's in chapter 33. He said, this indicates that hope, not judgment, is the last word for Israel. Moses blesses the tribes before he dies in exile. Throughout the blessing is the motif of triumph over enemies. So even though there's a lot of warning of judgment and the curses actually outweigh the blessings, the, the, the book ends on a hopeful note. And so let's close with the last uh, chapter 33. Is it verse 26 and 27 where uh, Moses is, is speaking of the incomparability of Yahweh, right? So he says, There is none like God, O Jeshurun. And Jeshurun uh, is referring to Israel. There is none like God, O Jeshurun, who rides through the heavens to your help, through the skies in his majesty. The eternal God is your dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. Happy are you, O Israel, who is like you? A people saved by the Lord, the shield of your help and the sword of your triumph. Your enemies shall come fawning to you, and you shall tread upon their backs. That's 26, 27, and 29, okay? And then it ends, chapter 34, verses 9 through 12, describing Joshua, the son of Nun, who is full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. So the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, None like him for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of Israel. No prophet like Moses until Jesus. Right? And Jesus comes in as the ultimate and final prophet.